Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, a podcast engineered by Fractal Recording and produced by me, your host, Laura Shin, a Forbes contributor covering blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and fintech. Thanks for tuning in. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please tell others about the show. Share it on social media or with your friends who you think may be interested. Also, if you rate, review, and subscribe to Unchained on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, that also helps get word out about the show. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our sponsor, OnRamp. Branding isn't just a logo. Your brand is the essence of who you are and what you offer your customers. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that provides its clients with concise and exceptionally designed branding, websites, and marketing materials that will resonate with your audience, affect its purchase decisions, and ultimately grow your business. You can learn more at thinkonramp.com. My guest today is Bobby Lee, CEO of BTCC, one of the most popular Chinese cryptocurrency exchanges. Prior to that, Bobby was an engineer at Yahoo and vice president of technology at Walmart in China. He is also the brother of Charlie Lee, the creator of Litecoin. And for the record, Bobby and I go way back because we were in the same freshman dorm together at Stanford. Welcome, Bobby. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the basics. What products and services does BTCC offer? Yeah, BTCC, we are a, what, we, what I consider a full spectrum Bitcoin company. We started as a BTC China in early 2011 as the very first Bitcoin exchange in China. And now we have the honor of being the longest running exchange in the whole world. We've been running for, for close to six years now. So besides offering exchange, we also started offering wallet services at the end of 2013. And we got into the mining pool business in 2014. And then we also, we launched a physical Bitcoin business uh, last year in 2016. So we've done a variety of things in the cryptocurrency space, mostly focused on Bitcoin. And so what does that even mean, physical Bitcoin? Oh, physical Bitcoin is, is, is our BTCC mint business. Basically, it's the idea of selling these tokens, we, we, the coins that we made out of titanium, and they contain the actual private key of a Bitcoin account. So as you know, each Bitcoin account is actually just protected by the private key, and the address is just derived from the public key of the private key. So we embed the private key beneath a tamper-evident hologram, holographic sticker. We stick that on the backside of a titanium coin, and that's the thing we sell. It's essentially a hardware wallet. It's a one-time-use hardware wallet where people can put funds in the Bitcoin, and then when they want to redeem it, they would peel the sticker and then uh, just import the private key into a Bitcoin wallet of their choice to move the Bitcoins over to another address. So these are very popular Bitcoin collectibles that we've been selling since last year. 
Oh, interesting. Who's buying them? A lot of collectors are. We we have a whole range of uh, of coins. Everything. The the first ones we issued were the one bitcoins made of titanium. We went into larger denominations uh, with a five bitcoin, and eventually the biggest ones we sell are the blocks, the full bitcoin blocks. The one unique thing about BTCC Mint is that all the bitcoins in these uh, collectibles are coming straight from our mining pool, meaning they're brand new transactions. These are bitcoin rewards uh, from each block, each uh, each bitcoin block. You know how we have the Twelve and a half new bitcoins issued in each block reward today. It started with fifty bitcoins, you know, eight years ago, and then after the first block having went to twenty-five, and then last summer via the second block having, now there's twelve and a half new bitcoins issued in every block reward. So we sell these blocks that contain the full block reward plus the transaction fees. That's really interesting for to create a physical. Um, memento, I guess, of something that's created out of software. And I just wanted to clarify for listeners who maybe weren't aware of, you know, this thing about mining and the block reward. Um, you know, what Bobby was referring to is that the software rewards the miners who essentially kind of like secure the transactions on the network uh, by paying them in Bitcoin. And uh, when the software first launched, it was releasing 50 Bitcoin to a miner for every block of transactions that they would process. And um, every roughly every four years or so that the amount of Bitcoin gets halved. Uh, so it went to 25 and then now is down to 12.5. We have something very new and exciting I'd like to tell you about, Laura, uh, is our new wallet called Mobi. Uh, we launched Mobi this year, Mobi, M-O-B-I. The website is mobi.me, M-O-B-I dot M-E. This is a new revolutionary uh, hosted Bitcoin wallet that is global payments. It natively supports all the currencies in the world. So in there, you could hold Bitcoin and also trade it and exchange it to US dollars, euros, Hong Kong dollars, renminbi, whatever currencies you want in the world, and even gold and silver. So it's a multi-currency wallet. And best of all, it's a mobile-first application that uses mobile numbers. That means that you could receive and send money to anyone in the world with a smartphone, iOS, and Android. And all you need is a mobile phone number. So for people even don't have Mobi, now anyone in the world can have a Bitcoin digital currency account. And that's what the Mobi vision is. We aim to be the first sort of bank ever to get a billion customers. We want to have a billion people in the world to have Mobi wallets. And the idea is that we can all have cryptocurrencies in a pocket. We could, it's a global world. We can we can move money to anyone we want in any currency we want. So please give it a try, Moby.me. And what markets are your users in generally? So it's, it's a huge – it's really – even though we – as a company, BTCC started in China, I see ourselves as a global company. My vision for the company is that – Everyone will use Bitcoin. So we aim to provide the whole world. So our, vi our, our vision is that everyone will use Bitcoin. Our mission statement for BTCC is to provide the whole world with the most convenient and trustworthy digital currency services. And we truly think Mobi is the next evolution of BTCC to help establish that. So Mobi for the first time is a inter truly international global product rollout for, from BTCC. It's no longer a China only thing. You could say that our exchange and mining pool business were Chinese businesses, but Mobi is truly a global, global play. And we have it 
in over 15 languages on the App Store. So Mobi today, on, you can download from the Apple app, iOS App Store. Uh, it comes in 15 different languages. It's got huge potential. I think this might be the killer app for Bitcoin. And we think it's the killer app for Bitcoin we think was, was hiding in plain sight, which is to use Bitcoin as money. Think about that. No one has truly been able to use Bitcoin as money. What you're doing with Moby isn't that different from what Circle has been doing. Well, I, I beg to differ. I think Circle, first of all, they explicitly pulled out of Bitcoin. So, so I thought I that mean, was, they're uh, using it on the back end. But how many currencies do they support? I mean, what, what market do they use? You know? Yeah, you don't go buy Bitcoin there. but Yeah, so we, we explicitly support Bitcoin, Bitcoin in, Bitcoin out. You can even redeem your mint coins through Mobi. You can scan the QR codes or type in the private keys. And once you have the Bitcoin, it, it's bas- Bitcoin is basically global currency. That, that's the point we're trying to make with Mobi is Bitcoin is global currency. So we're not we're not trying to hide it and use it in the back end. That I think that's just a marketing speak, right? But for us, Bitcoin is the real thing. It's a first class citizen. It's the global reserve currency. So you could charge up money in Mobi by putting in Bitcoin, by depositing Bitcoin into the Bitcoin address. There's a QR code, you could copy paste the address, you can send it to, to Mobi, and you can also always at any point in time move your money out of Mobi. Okay. And then but once your money is in Mobi, then it could be turned into any currency worldwide. It could send money to other people. So you could send Laura, you can, if you have relatives around the world, you could send them money. And you don't have to send them Bitcoin. You can send them money in the native currency. Or you can send them US dollars. Did you have to get banking partners in all these countries in order to do that? No. No. It's in the end, this is a cryptocurrency wallet. So all the money in there is all hedged by by our team. So even though we promise you US dollars, euros, and so on. In the end, in there, we store the money as Bitcoin. And yeah. then so when I cash out, how do I get the when dollars? When you cash out, you would we would give you the equivalent Bitcoins, bits, if you will. One Bitcoin is a million bits. So let's say, Laura, I sent you 100 US dollars. So in your mobile wallet, you would see $100. And all I have to do to send you $100 is to, to know your phone number. And I can send you $100, and you could download it and then reclaim claim it. And with that $100, you want to cash out, you would say one day it would be integrated with Coinbase or even without integration, you could send it to Coinbase. So you could then send the amount of Bitcoins in there to Coinbase and then you sell it on Coinbase and you would get roughly $100. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. And because you know you have $100 worth of Bitcoins, you will no longer be rushed and eager to sell it on Coinbase. You might just keep $100 in Mobi and then spend it with your friends or other services without ever cashing out. Does that make sense? Right, but it's being held in Bitcoin. Exactly, it's held in Bitcoin. So then the value goes up and down with Bitcoin. No, 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 it's, for you it's $100. For you it's always $100, regardless of Bitcoin oh, price going up or down. Now if oh, you okay. want for it to go up and down with Bitcoin, then you convert either some or all the $100 to Bitcoin, and then it will go up and down with Bitcoin. I see. Or if you prefer euros, Japanese yen, you can convert to all those other currencies. Huh, okay. Well, this sounds really interesting. I guess we'll see how much it grows. Yeah. So I actually also then just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the mining. When you say that you offer that as a service, you talked about it as a pool. How is that set up? Yeah. So Bitcoin mining is an integral part of this industry of our ecosystem. So mining is the concept of of getting these, of using computer power, what we call hashing power, to contribute to the blockchain building the blockchain and verifying transactions. And in, in reward, the Bitcoin network would, would reward 
miners with newly issued Bitcoin for their for their services. So this has been going on for the whole eight plus years in the Bitcoin industry. And what we offer is a mining pool. A mining pool is a service where we ourselves, BTCC, our company, we don't participate in the mining. We don't have any hardware. We don't invest any capital to do that. But because we have a lot of customers who do do that, we pull them together. And the idea is that they can get better payout and better luck and more even distribution of their workload by joining a pool service. Uh, how it works is that it turns out Bitcoins are mined on average of of once every 10 minutes. So a block comes out every 10 minutes, so six blocks per hour, 144 blocks per day. Now, you can only get rewarded if you actually find the block, quote unquote, find it. And the way to find it is to calculate the right hash number, the special hash number. And people all over the world with mining machines are sort of uh, guessing at these different numbers. And once every 10 minutes, depending on the rate of difficulty, someone in the world would guess the right hash number. And by guessing the right hash number, they would get the full block reward. Now, imagine if you're just a single miner somewhere, whether in China, United States, or in Europe, your chance of getting it might be very slim. You might not get it once an hour and might not even get it once a day. You might only, on average, get it once every five weeks. If that were the case, you would get 12 and a half Bitcoins every five weeks. But that's a huge volatility in terms, in terms of your income. So what they do is these miners would join a pool. And then rather than getting the payout on actual, you would actually get a fractional payout on a per day basis, and that smooths out your income. So that's the service we offer. And in return, uh, we, we, so we, we, we charge a small service fee for offering this mining pool service, and then we actually put these new Bitcoins into these uh, Bitcoin collectibles from BTCC Mint. So it's a win-win for everyone in the ecosystem. And so for your pool, what percent of the uh, computing power on the Bitcoin network, does that account for? Right now, it's about uh, 8%, 7 to 8%. Uh, the, the mining pool ecosystem has changed a lot over the years. A few years ago, it was more centralized. But this year, in a good way, uh, in the last 6, 12 months, the, the, the whole mining pool net, uh, ecosystem and market share has been very decentralized. So it's a good, it's a good thing overall for the, for the Bitcoin ecosystem. And why has that happened? There are many players getting into the space. So we hear about, so mining is very decentralized. Uh, there, you know, there are talks about a lot of miners are in China. That may be true, but the reality is there are thousands and thousands of people mining, you know, with terahashes and petahashes equipment uh, spread out all over the world. A lot of it could be in China. A lot of it is elsewhere in the world. And uh, this is what makes Bitcoin healthy because as we, as we all know, the virtue of Bitcoin is its decentralized global nature in that no single there's no single point of failure so that no single company, no single individual can succumb to government pressure or any other pressure that can bring down the Bitcoin network. As you mentioned, you are running the longest running exchange in the world. So you have quite the history in Bitcoin. How did you get started into all this? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's actually through my brother, as you mentioned earlier. He's famous for creating Litecoin, so he tipped me off on Bitcoin in early 2011. At the time, I was uh, with Walmart. I had my my role in China in, with Walmart e-commerce. I had a good job. 
my brother told me about Bitcoin. At first, I was intrigued, and again, he heard it. I think read about it from Slashdot or something the, the year before in 2010. So by early 2011, I heard about it, and he was starting mining Bitcoin with his, you know, with a setup of GPU cards, graphics cards, and uh, so I got my. I started mining in the summer of 2011 as well by uh, getting some graphics cards from from him, from Charlie. Uh, so I was my he was mining in California. I was doing some Bitcoin mining in Shanghai uh, that summer of 2011. Uh, I mined about 20 Bitcoins in all. At the time, didn't think much about it. I remember setting up these machines, these graphics cards. And of course, it generated a lot of heat with all the power supplies and the fans and all that stuff. So we heat up a whole room in the in the apartment. So eventually, I turned it off in the fall. But that was a lot of fun. We just, you know, poking around. At the time, it was it was Bitcoin. It was a digital currency. You know, the Bitcoin actually has not changed in the last few years at all. It's still what it is in terms of the essence of it. But truth be told, at the time in 2011, six six years ago, I didn't read. I did not fully understand and fully comprehend the impact and the the fundamentals of Bitcoin. Which is why it took me a long time before I actually was willing to put my own money to buy Bitcoin. So I didn't, I didn't actually touch Bitcoin uh, until 2013. That's when I uh, decided, after I left Walmart, I decided I wanted to get a new career in something. And rather than go back to the tra- traditional tech sector, I thought that I could do a startup. And in the back of my mind, I've always thought Bitcoin was intriguing enough to do a startup. I, th- I promised myself in the summer of 2011, if I ever were to do a startup, it would be in Bitcoin. And that's why by the end of 2012, early 2013, I thought, hey, this might be the chance. Let me come in and do something. And that's when I got together with my two co-founders in China to to sort of uh, take BTC China to a new level. So we uh, we agreed to, to cooperate. I came in as CEO uh, and co-founder. And we raised venture money for BTC China. So we were actually the first company in all of Asia to get VC funding. Uh, so that was in the summer of 2013. And then, and then, the, and then you know, of course, that whole year was a huge uh, bull year for Bitcoin, having seen the bull market in April of 2013. And then once again, uh, a huge bull market run in the fall of 2013, going up to eventually, you know, 1200 US dollars per Bitcoin. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about kind of those early days, you know, because here we are in 2017. um, For, uh, you know, most of the last few years, China has been kind of a main uh, hub of activity in Bitcoin. Um, But what was it like back then in those early days? You know, were people hearing about it? And, you know, who were the people involved? Yeah. So in the 2011 days, those are way, way early. Like it was just some software, something we're doing on the internet. Like there was, I didn't even bother talking to anyone else about it. My wife was, was asking me, what's this? Why do you have this machine running? I was like, oh, you just, just, you know, I'm just running some servers and stuff like that. So I didn't really talk too much about it. It's only when I got serious about Bitcoin, you know, for my career, that's when I started talking to other people about it. So I distinctly remember in 2013, uh, I was studying, getting my EMBA degree at CIBS out here in Shanghai. I remember in early 2013, I would would ask my classmates and I would even ask people largely in, in a huge auditorium, like who has heard of Bitcoin? And it would be no one, like no one person out there has ever, ever heard of Bitcoin. And that's when I thought this is very interesting because it's a huge opportunity. It felt like 
it felt exactly like how the internet was. You know, when I was at Stanford with you, Laura, in early in the early nineties, uh, 1993, 94, no one has heard of the internet, right? Um, only the academics, only the really nerdy people had, had heard of the internet back then. So I thought this is an opportunity of the lifetime is that, uh, the, the fundamentals were sound. I being, you know, having, having studied computer science myself, I understand cryptography. I understand the problem of double spending and I, and I intuitively understood the concept of the fact that this is a huge breakthrough for Bitcoin having solved the double st the, the double spending problem for digital currencies, virtual currencies online, because digital information is so easily copied. How can you have a currency where things are so easily copied? Well, the solution was to have a global blockchain and have the blockchain keep track of the accounts movement of Bitcoins back and forth, and then having proof of work as a way to to guarantee the the blockchain, the the longest uh, blockchain. So all these things coming together is a tour de force. It's really, really innovative. Like no individually, every single component of Bitcoin has been has been done. You know, been there, done that. But collectively, putting these pieces together to form a new concept of digital currency online, that was a huge, huge invention, a huge innovation that I liken to the invention of electricity. You know, and all, and the invention of computers. So, so in 2013, were other people in China kind of hearing about it or, or was it just really under the radar? It was way under the radar. So I, I um, started giving talks and talking to people about it. I remember we had a Stanford alumni club gathering and I, I dedicated a whole session to talk about Bitcoin. That was in, I think, May of 2013. So you know, slowly, slowly, that's, that, that was a breakout year for Bitcoin in China and worldwide. That's when the media started covering it about what is Bitcoin, you know, wh why is this even, why are we even talking about it? You know, the idea that, oh, there's a new digital currency, a new cryptocurrency. You know, people were still calling it virtual currency back then. Today, we know that the term virtual currency is a misuse of that name because Bitcoin is much more of a digital currency, a digital cryptocurrency, cryptographic currency. Uh, unlike the virtual currencies from the 90s and 2000s, from the early days of the internet. Yeah. And so when Bitcoin became kind of, well, when it broke into popular consciousness here in the US, that was the same thing that happened in China there. Is that also the same time when suddenly, you know, the vast majority of trading in Bitcoin was occurring in China? Yeah, two, 2013 was also the year for the for the breakout in trading for Bitcoin. So we had we had always been the 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 very first and largest exchange in China, and Bitcoin trading was was just in the probably let me try to think a few a few thousand bitcoins a day. And remember, Bitcoin prices were much much lower back then too. So that was in the summer, and then we introduced zero fee trading in the fall, and that's when the uh, the volume started come up big time. So it was a gutsy move. The idea was to spur trading, actually. The idea was to spur trading, was to sort of borrow from the internet model in the early days of giving out free email accounts and, you know, free news, you know, sort of the Yahoo days. The idea was to spur trading. It had implication on a revenue model, but I thought it might be a good thing to, to actually give this thing a big injection. Um, and, and I think it worked to the most, for the most part because we introduced zero-fee trading in late September, right before the October holidays. And then by October, we saw trading volumes keep going up and up and up. And 
you know, I, I can't say if it's causation or correlation, but certainly that's also when the prices started coming up. From about, if I recall correctly, it's about $150 US, going up to $200, $250, $300. And then, so that was a like a three-month bull run from October all the way through through December, went up to eventually to $1,200 US dollars. And as we know, Chinese people are always looking for investment opportunities. So that was a fun, crazy year when the Chinese people got interested. Got well, they first got word of Bitcoin. They they now and said, "Wow, there's this site online that now you could actually deposit money and trade these things called Bitcoins and actually make money." So a lot of day traders came out of that, uh, and it was very exciting to to be part of that in 2013. And so at that time, were you making money then on the conversion into and out of yuan and then the trades within Bitcoin were free? Yes, we we made money in other ways. We charged uh, withdrawal fees for CNY. So we made up for that. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a very fun year. And so, you know, we have these conceptions in the West about how <laughs> there was just so much trading activity in, in China. But was it just kind of like a really rabid niche group in China that was interested in it? Or was it like, you know, the vast majority of Chinese people were actually <laughs> buying and you know, trading Bitcoin? Or, you know, who was it attracting? Yeah. So certainly it was not all of China. That would be a very dishonest to say it was all of China. I mean, China has, you know, 1.3 billion people. Right. Uh, so it wasn't all of China. Uh, now, I would say it, it's slightly more than a niche. So a niche, you know, whether you think it's 10, 15, 50 people, it's probably in the hundreds and thousands, in the hundreds up to a, a few thousand people. So it's not, it's not um, in the millions and tens of millions. Now, certainly, I would say that Millions of people heard about Bitcoin, but as we all know, just because you hear about it doesn't mean that you're trading it, right? There's a huge, there's always a huge factor. Sorry, how do you say it? There's a huge uh, drop-off rate. So you hear about it, and then, and then the drop-off rate is like one tenth of the people who hear about it actually understand it, and a tenth of the people who understand it actually go decide to want to take action, and then of that, only a tenth of them actually do take action and end up being trading traders. Okay, but was there a particular profile of the type of person who, you know, took that yeah, step? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The the profile we we saw were you know young men, you know, in their in their twenties and thirties, in the twenties mostly. These are the IT people, the people who are who are geeks and uh, computer science people who understood the powerfulness of Bitcoin and the in the implications, and who also may have had access to some capital. They, they would buy and sell and buy Bitcoin to hold. There was also narrative in the news about these uh, these old retired ladies, what, we call, what they call Tama in China. It's a term where they are, as a class of people, these mothers and grandmothers who are retired, they have a lot of savings, and they would go out and, and make, make uh, savvy investments in either gold, real estate, and now they caught on to Bitcoin. But that was more of a narrative that there's this huge Dama following who are investing in Bitcoin. But I think that was uh, more fluff than, than reality. There might be in a few Dama, but certainly not, not an army of them doing Bitcoin investments. And then another thing that you often heard, or maybe it's still the case, is that a lot of Chinese people were interested in Bitcoin because it enabled them to evade the capital controls that limited how much money people could send out of the country. 
Was that something that you saw? Yeah, it's the capital controls issue is, is complicated. It's always been a topic. People always, always come and ask me about it. Like, oh, how do I use Bitcoin to evade capital controls? <clears throat> uh, excuse me. The the unfortunately, I don't think I, I I honestly have not seen that happen at any scale. You know, people may, may buy bitcoins on a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to to move around in the world, but we definitely have not seen any sort of evading capital controls in any large means, any anything in excess of $100,000 or $1 million. And, and the reason is two things. One is Bitcoin is still very, very hard. Even to this day in 2017, Bitcoin is still very hard. How, you know, how to get an account set up an exchange? Where are these exchanges around the world? Which ones are trustworthy? You know, how do you deposit money? How do you wire money over there? How long does it take? And how do you buy the Bitcoins? And how do you move the Bitcoins out? How do you store the Bitcoins? How do you transfer it to another exchange abroad? How do you open an account over there? And so on and so forth. So it's a huge, huge hassle for, for the vast majority of the people. So I would say only the elite subset in the Bitcoin industry actually know how to do that and buy, sell Bitcoin across multiple exchanges worldwide. Even myself, I don't. I have an account on BTC, but I don't have any other accounts at any other exchanges. That's just the reality. So even I don't have the ability to do that. So the other reality is that if you look at China, China definitely has a capital control uh, policy. Uh, the renminbi is not a freely exchanged currency, and part of that is because China has built up a huge reserve of foreign currencies. You know, approximately three trillion dollars it's a little bit less than that now but in any case china is hugely concerned over the last year about this outflow of money and so when we when people in china go change money from u.s dollars to chinese currency or from chinese RMB to u.s dollars at a local bank when they do that at a local bank it actually affects the currency reserves because the foreign currencies that are provided by the bank are are, are basically held and controlled by the central bank who hold the who hold the foreign reserves? So for Bitcoin, it turns out there is no capital flight for Bitcoin because everything's neutral. And the the lesson here is that when people buy even a lot, let's say they buy one million RMB worth of Bitcoin in China, the reality is they're buying it from someone who's selling the Bitcoin. So first of all, the buyer's money, the local renminbi, would go into the account and the hands of the sellers. So the renminbi doesn't leave the country. So the Bitcoin is always in the cloud. These are, Bitcoins don't have a geographic location attached to them, right? As we all know, Bitcoins are held in Bitcoin accounts. Bitcoin accounts are protected by the private keys. So they're just all registered in the blockchain, which is global. There's no Chinese blockchain versus you know, international blockchain versus American blockchain. So it's just one Bitcoin blockchain. So if you think about it that way, whenever there's a large Bitcoin transaction, buying and selling, the money stays in the same country. It's, it's just changing hands between one person to another person in the same currency and the same banking system. And then the Bitcoin stay in the blockchain. It's just changing ownership and title of it. Right, so, but then what if the person exchanges their you on for Bitcoin and then they open an account on Coinbase and then they cash out in US dollars and you know sure. what I mean? That then obviously sure. it's sure. You're absolutely right that they could do that. But my my point is that when they do that, someone else is on the other side of the trade. It would be similar to someone else buying the Bitcoins on Coinbase and then selling it on BTCC in China. You see, it's net neutral. Does that make sense? I'm not arguing no one's doing it. I'm arguing it's all net neutral. 
Yeah, for the individual who's doing it, you know, they are able to have their holdings in, you know, what is starts out as yuan, they're eventually able to convert those into some other currency. Sure. So, that, that's what yeah. trade is all about. If you think, if you come back to the idea of trade, global trade, that's what trade is all about, cross-border trade. So Bitcoin does engage in cross-border trade, but it doesn't, it, it, it's not like a massive export event or massive import event. It's all neutral. It's all trade neutral. That's a great thought. Let, let's just pause things right here to bring in an important word from our sponsor, OnRamp. The best companies in the world obsess about branding. Killer branding will transcend your company and strategically and competitively position you in the market. Done well, a remarkable brand will affect buyers and their purchase decisions and give your organization a voice that sets you up for the long-term success. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that helps their clients maximize brand awareness, gain market momentum, and accelerate growth. Whether it's branding and identity for a new startup, redesigning an existing website to generate traffic and leads, or executing a custom design project or marketing strategy, OnRamp will get your organization strategically poised for the future. You can learn more and see examples of their work at thinkonramp.com. I'm speaking with Bobby Lee, CEO of Chinese cryptocurrency exchange, BTCC. So one thing that's been in the news a lot um, in terms of, well, <laughs> for Bitcoin people, um, has been some of the Chinese government's actions around um, the industry, uh, particularly this year. So can you just describe for me how the Chinese government's attitude toward Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies has changed, you know, what was it when you founded BTCC and then how has um, it evolved since then? Yeah. So the, the what we know in the industry is that Bitcoin is actually truly a, uh, a, a sort of monetary financial instrument. The reason is because it, it has the properties of money. It has the properties of a store of value. However, for the first time in history, we have a monetary money instrument that is not actually issued and controlled by government. Even though gold is decentralized, but eventually governments co-opted it and used it as a base of money. So coining coinage and minting gold coins back you know, for, for centuries, right? So whereas today, Bitcoin is still untouched by government in the sense that no, no government authorities have actually recognized Bitcoin as money or used, sorry, yeah, no one has recognized used Bitcoin as money and no one has so far expressed willing, willingness to do so. So Bitcoin stands unique in that position. Uh, so this also says that central banks around the world are still refusing to acknowledge that Bitcoin is money or Bitcoin is at the same level as what we call the fiat currencies. And in terms of China, as with many other countries, you know, in the early days in 2011, 2013, it wasn't even on the radar. It's just this brand new sort of geek thing on the internet, you know, pretending to be money when it has no legal status. So that was the that was the situation up through early 2013. And by the end of 2013, the PBOC got attention of Bitcoin. And that's when the first sort of regulatory inklings came out. And in December, essentially, they stated that Bitcoin is actually a virtual good. And thus so, people are allowed to own it. People are allowed to trade it. You know, websites are allowed to offer exchange services such as BTC China, BTCC. However, because it's only a virtual good and not actually a monetary instrument, all existing financial institutions such as banks third-party payment companies, insurance companies, and so on, they are not allowed to touch Bitcoin. So that was the 
sort of edict ruling uh, issued in December 5th of 2013. So, so for the last four years, uh, for the last, yeah, three and a half, four years, we've been running under that guideline. So unfortunately, the, the PBOC still has not issued any new update to that ruling since uh, December 2013. Okay, but earlier this year, there were certain steps that they took, I guess, regulators, you know, talked to several of the exchanges about, I think it was maybe KYC, AML type things, which are know your customer anti-money laundering processes and maybe the fact that uh, you guys were doing no fee trading. What were some of the talks that you had with them? Yeah, I can't go into the details. Uh, those are all privileged conversations. Uh, but it's true that uh, early this year in January, the PBOC Central Bank, they had officials come visit us and many other exchanges. There, there started to be a renewed interest in the topic of Bitcoin and potentially regulating Bitcoin. So we're, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, the, the main concern was about about the financial risks of trading in Bitcoin. You know, people, you know, the, if prices go up, people can make money or people can lose money, right, if prices come down. So there's a lot of concern there. Uh, there's also concern for for money laundering. So we want to make sure all the exchanges put in the right best practices to prevent money laundering. So a lot of anti-money laundering rules to make sure those are followed, uh, as well as know your customer. The idea is to make sure the customers are legitimate and trading on their own, their own names and there's not, not to have uh, fraudulent activities or any sort of other imposters and stuff like that. So th- these are real legitimate issues that the banking system has faced over, over its many decades of operating. And likewise, Bitcoin exchanges need to improve these areas. So we've, we've been working closely with the central bank to try to um, essentially elevate our service offering to the level that we need to, uh, given the importance of Bitcoin. And what are some of the changes that BTCC has instituted, as well as you know some of the other bigger exchanges? Yeah. So earlier this year, in 2017, we we stopped offering margin trading services. Uh, we also eliminated the zero fees, the zero trading commissions. We reinstituted a trading commission on all buy sell. The idea was to sort of calm down the market a little bit. I think it was a little bit overheated, maybe at the end of last year. So these were moves that we took voluntarily to try to appease appease the situation a little bit. And how have Chinese crypto traders and investors how have they changed their behaviors since then? Well, it's very it's very prominent change, uh, which is the trading volumes have come down a lot. I mean, essentially, we had a lot of inflated volumes from zero-fee trading, and that all went away. A lot of wash trading, that all went away. So now, uh, I would say the the market is quite subdued, the trading market, the exchange trading market. Now, what's interesting is is we now there's developed into two markets. There's the on-exchange market in China, and then separately, there's the OTC market. So the prices have actually diverged. So that's an interesting phenomenon. So the on-exchange market, the Bitcoin price is lower. And then the OTC market, which is the so-called off-exchange over-the-counter market where people buy, sell themselves on the street without going through a third-party exchange, that price is actually much higher. So there's some... And why is that? It's it's a market dynamics, I would say. The on-exchange market, you know, has requirements mandated by the 
PPOC, including the KYC, you know, all that stuff. So there's more overhead. So people are discounting. There's a discount on the price due to the fear of burden, if you will. There's some extra burden, extra inconvenience, maybe extra concerns. Whereas an OTC market, it's just two individuals. It's a peer-to-peer change, right? It's just you, one person on a street corner, you know, selling Bitcoins to another person walking up to him on the street corner. And they could exchange in cash or whatever currency, whatever they want. It's just it's just consent amongst two adults, right? So that price apparently is, is much higher than the market price. So that price is actually more closer to the US dollar price in Bitcoin as well. So the more the more the so called global international price. So something that I find interesting about this conversation is that I, I don't remember, was it a year ago or I think it was a year ago, I did a story where I interviewed you about some of the cultural differences between how Chinese investors approach Bitcoin versus how you see people approaching it here in, in the yes. US. Can you describe you know, what those differences are in kind of like what they were historically versus what they are now? Like, do you think maybe the differences are less, you know, stark now? I don't exactly recall what I told you specifically, but I'll, I'll say this. In, in Bit, Bitcoin is a global thing. And the thing itself, Bitcoin itself, is, is, is um, it's a big invention, Bitcoin, okay? Because it's a big invention, it's due to its complexities. Let's put it that way. Bitcoin is a lot of things in it. It's got a lot of things, a lot of factors in it. That's why it's so complex. That's why such a small portion of the world actually know about Bitcoin and understand Bitcoin. It's very, very complicated. And because it's global, we have countries all over the world, all these cultures and people all over the world. It turns out different people see Bitcoin differently, meaning that some cultures value Bitcoin for its store value. Other people value for it, it being digital. Some cultures value for being a payment system, you know, and so well, on and so forth. So how do you feel the Chinese view it as opposed yeah. to Westerners? Yeah, so, so Westerners may view it as a payment system, but, but Chinese people, they, they truly see it as a monetary instrument, as a store of value, right? We see it as a system where it has a 24, seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week sort of trading. Nothing in the world trades, I mean, except for, I think only Forex, foreign currency exchanges trades 24 seven. So, so Chinese people see it much more like Forex, and so what behaviors do they exhibit that are different from what you see Westerners exhibiting? Yeah. So because the Chinese people see it as Forex and because China is unique in the world to have actually a capital control system on, on the renminbi, they see Bitcoin as sort of the vent to escape the capital control system. But the vent goes both ways, right? It's both to escape the money and also to inflow the money. That's why That's why. That's why there's huge potential. That's why I always get asked the question, is Bitcoin being used to evade capital controls, right? So because of that, it's also a store of value. So people in China, just like the rest of the world, we've seen depreciation of a monetary system in terms of purchasing power. We've seen the loss of purchasing power in in our currencies. We've seen huge ramp up of money printing over the last eight years. And that's why, if, if you think about why is Bitcoin moderately successful today, why is Bitcoin even a topic today, it's precisely to mirror the, the failures and deficiencies of the 
government-issued monetary system, which is the U.S. dollar, the, the, the paper money, right? So I know it's sort of getting into a philosophical discussion, but, but the Chinese people see it that way. They, they see it fundamentally that, oh, Bitcoin is an escape. It, it's, it's, it's sort of like the exit sign. It's sort of like the thing that you can, you can use it to leave the existing system, which has its problems. So that's why uh, it's, been, it's been pursued that way. So in China, for example, something, something practical, practically no one uses Bitcoin to pay for things in China. It's, ne- it's not even used as a payment system, right? And the other reason for it is China actually has very mature payment systems like Alipay and now WeChat Pay. So China has very mature payment systems, even though Visa and MasterCard is not established in China, but China has China Union Pay, the, the, the credit card standard here. So one other, one other thing that I think, you know, has been influenced a little bit by cultural issues between China and the West is that there's this stalemate that we've seen in Bitcoin over how best to scale the network. And, you know, correct me if you disagree, but uh, the miners who are, you know, largely Chinese, not all, but largely, and then the core developers who are largely Western, I, I think they play the biggest role here in, in this decision over how to grow the network. Do you think that there are cultural differences that are influencing you know, this decision-making process and making it difficult for them to get past this impasse? Well, I don't want to pinpoint to cultural differences. I think it's natural that when, whenever there's a contentious issue, that there are multiple sides and multiple factions. I think just by definition, anything that has multiple factions is contentious. So for anything that's important enough, inevitably, you reach a point in time where there will be an issue that's important and two large populations take opposite viewpoints, right? This is just human nature. It's nothing to do with culture. It's nothing to do with language or nothing to do with, you know, East versus West. It could be North versus South. It could be, you know, whatever. And and it's happened in Bitcoin. And it, in many ways, it's a great thing, right? Be- because Bitcoin has grown up to be large enough to have an issue that's contentious. So I, I see the positive aspects of it. And now the question is, what's, well, what's going to happen? Well, the, the, the other single best thing about Bitcoin is no one explicitly has power. There's no single person, no single group organizationally that explicitly has power. So the so-called checks and balances, the concept of checks and balances are inherently built into the Bitcoin system. So like you said, there's the miners, there's developers, there's the exchange operators, there's the users. There are multiple, multiple stakeholders and factions, if you will. And no one single group of people have ultimate power over Bitcoin. And if there's a stalemate, there's a stalemate. That means Bitcoin won't change. And that that's also the strength of it, that Bitcoin is not easily changeable. Another blockchain network that's generated a lot of interest in the West is Ethereum. But I believe that trading of its currency, Ether, is pretty low in China. What are Chinese attitudes towards Ethereum? I can't speak for all of China in terms of attitude towards Ethereum. But I can tell you my personal views is that it's this power loss situation. Uh, it's basically the power loss situation. I, I don't know the exact formal terminology. It's basically B- Bitcoin is hard enough. Okay, let, let me just put it out there. Bitcoin is hard enough. It's complicated enough. It's really esoteric already when, when we talk about the real world, the common world, the common society. Okay, Bitcoin is just way esoteric. So 
what I've dedicated my life over the last few years is to promote and advocate for Bitcoin. It's, it's a tough enough job. And it turns out Ethereum is just one of many other cryptocurrencies that came after Bitcoin. And you know, like we talked about, there's Litecoin, there's Doggycoin, you know, there's Ethereum, there's a whole bunch, Ripple and a whole bunch of other, there's, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of other of these cryptocurrencies that are, that came after Bitcoin. And some of them are popular, like Ethereum, you know, there's a few more that are quite popular. But for me, it's like, I want to spend time and get Bitcoin, make Bitcoin successful first. It's only when Bitcoin is mainstream that the other coins have a chance. That's my perspective. So this could also explain why for Chinese people, the majority of the interest and attention so far has been on Bitcoin. And there are, you know, attention and trades in these other coins. And But, but the reality is that there's a lot of other pump and dump you know, multi-level marketing schemes on these other altcoins. So it gives the all the it gives a whole altcoin category a bad reputation. You're a board member of the Bitcoin Foundation, and it's had some stumbles over the years. In 2015, it almost disbanded. The money was mismanaged. What has it been doing since then? Yeah, Bitcoin Foundation is, is interesting. I joined. I forgot. I think it was 2014. Yeah, as a board member. It had an interesting start. It was founded by the early people in Bitcoin, and many of them. Um, well, anyway, I don't want to go and dig into the past, but the point is that there has been some uh, concerns from the public about the the early people in Bitcoin Foundation. So today we have a healthy board of you know, uh, I think it was six or seven board members, and it's a new group of people today. We're still trying, to be honest, we're, fi- we're trying to find the right bearing, find a bearing in terms of how to contribute and help. What we know is we as the Bitcoin Foundation, we're focused on Bitcoin. I think over the last year, we see a lot of industry and society efforts have put more attention on blockchain. There's a lot of hype around the word blockchain. We have decided to stay true to the core and to promote Bitcoin, Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency itself, Bitcoin, the global decentralized digital currency. So we're making an effort to, to do that. And obviously, whether it's funding, whether it's support, obviously some of these are challenges. But in but in the end, I think we have a good p- group of people who are behind it. And we're going to try to make a difference in this world, especially in this challenging times with block size debates, with the government regulatory stuff. So it's, it's, never, it's never a boring day in the Bitcoin space. So speaking of it never being a boring day, what are some developments that you expect to see in cryptocurrency this this year? Uh, this year, I, I'm looking for more and more adoption and, and understanding of Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin reached $20 billion in circulation value, what they call market cap this year. I think it's a huge accomplishment. I, I think the, the good thing is it's a one-way street. And I, I truly think that, meaning that the adoption, the understanding of Bitcoin is a one-way street, meaning once you know something, you cannot never unknow it. So every day that goes on, every day with more newspaper and media coverage, with more podcasts spreading out, more and more people are learning about the concept of a digital decentralized cryptocurrency. And that's what Bitcoin is. And when more people learn about it, it's not they won't immediately buy into it, right? Obviously, it takes some time to 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 digest it. For me, it took two years. 
It took a good two years for me to digest and understand Bitcoin, for me to dip my toes into it in any meaningful way. So for many people, if it's not two years, it's at least six months or three months. So with a larger and larger population, Bitcoin and digital currencies will become mainstream. It might take a generation. You know, certainly the millennials, for them, you know, Bitcoin and digital currencies is natural. It's completely natural. They just don't understand why gold is valuable. For them, digital currencies will be a complete natural thing. So for that, I'm very, very excited. You know, you know, we are on a multi-decade mission, right? Bitcoin is going to keep being issued for the next 130 years to reach the 21 million target amount. So we're only at 16 million. It's going up pretty fast, but it's going to slow down very fast as well. So today, we are seeing only 1,800 Bitcoins being issued per day. That's a very, very small amount. That's roughly a little bit over $2 million in new excess Bitcoin capacity, uh, not capacity, Bitcoin value added to the world. So that means the world today is handling over six, $700 million of net new inflow. That's a very small amount for a huge, huge concept of a decentralized digital currency. You know, the equivalent amount of gold is in the in the billions, right? So for that, I'm... I'm excited for the continued increase in awareness over the over the coming year, and w- with awareness comes price appreciation. That's I think it's a direct correlation. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. How can our listeners find out more about you and BTCC? So come to our uh, website btcc.com. So thanks for joining us today. And for all the listeners out there who try Mobi, we're going to give you a free Visa debit card. You could just download, you should just order it with Mobi, and then you could spend money anywhere in the world by using the Visa debit card. You can even get cash at the ATMs. So that's the amazing thing about Mobi. Okay. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun talking to you on this podcast. Yeah. Same here. If you're interested in learning more about Bobby, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Thanks so much for tuning in to Unchained, which comes out every other Tuesday. Please share the podcast with friends and on social media. And please remember to review, rate, and subscribe to it in iTunes or your preferred platform. Thanks again for listening. 